It's been nearly a decade in office for the coalition. How good is Australia? But the Liberal national grip on power isn't firm. Heading into this election, Scott Morrison can't afford to lose a single seat. The message will be, stay with what you know, look what we've led you through, we've done better in an economic sense than the rest of the world, this is what the government will be saying, basically, don't risk it. Anthony Albanese is responding to that very message. He's introducing himself to voters, telling them that he's got an economics degree from Sydney Uni, that he yeah. is the a child of a single mother who's, who knows the value of a dollar. The Coalition effectively holds 76 seats. Labor notionally holds 69, seven short of outright victory. But the seven-seat path to a Labor win isn't straightforward. G'day, I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, the Australian election. It's this Saturday. What about the people who have nowhere to live? Australians. Get off the sure, let's just move back from there. Hey guys, I've just reseated that. Please, off the thing. Look, mate, in 1991, Social Security Act, that's what you're relying on. I have some burning questions about the Australian election. Like, why is the internet full of angry Aussies yelling at their political leaders? Why is there no you in Labour? And why do all the main players look the same? It is reasonably homogenous, certainly ethnically homogenous. There were quite a lot of women in the Labour Party, um, not so many in the National Party, in the Nationals and the Liberals, which we call the Coalition. And indeed, that's a big part of Scott Morrison's problem in this election. If you look at the polls, he has a real woman problem. We'll get back to Scotty from marketing's image issues later, but first, how does the Aussie system actually work? Let's start with a rundown on what might seem to New Zealanders to be a confusing electoral system. Here's Kiwi expat lawyer and political scientist Ross Stitt, who writes on Australian issues for outlets including Newsroom. The starting point, of course, is it's a federal system. So we have a series of states and then we have the Commonwealth, um, which is the Commonwealth of Australia. So the states have their own elections and their own systems and their own parliaments, etc. And then at the federal or Commonwealth level, um, we've got the House of Representatives and the Senate. The House of Representatives is the equivalent of New Zealand House. It's the body, um, the person that can get the majority of seats in the House can form government, and they then pass legislation through the House. But everything has to also pass the Senate, which is an upper house, a bit like the Senate in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the difference is that they have different voting systems. At the, in the House, we have what's called a preferential system, so that when you vote, you can rank your preferences. I want the, the Labour person first, the Greens person second, etc., etc. If someone gets a clear 50% plus one of the votes in the electorate, they win. If they don't, then have to knock out one of the failing candidates and their, their preferences are then spread between the others. And you go through this process until you get a person that gets 50% plus one uh, after the distribution of preferences. It's a little complicated, but yeah. the argument is that it's, it's, not a, it's not a binary black and white. I mean, is that an issue, that compulsory to vote well, in Australia, are Aussies more yes. engaged or are they just more confused? No, just, <laughs> I think just more confused. I don't really care too much. I'm going to vote for whoever I see the most signs on the day when I go to vote. But the, the parties will often give instructions and, and voting cards to people to, to tell them how to vote. So if you're a 
liberal supporter, a liberal candidate in that seat will tell you, well, this is this is where to put your preferences. Well, this is how, how to vote. Because obviously most people, a lot of people don't know who any of the candidates are, let alone all of the candidates. So they're not really making a judgment. They're usually sort of saying, well, I'm a Labour voter, so I'll, I'll go Labour and Greens and put the Pauline Hanson and the coalition last or, or vice versa. So um, it, it's it, in practice, it's not as bad as it sounds. So that's the House of Representatives. And then the Senate has a different system again. The Senate, for for a start, there are a certain number of Senate seats given to each state, even though the states have very different population sizes, obviously. So Tasmania gets proportionally greater power than New South Wales. And then within each state, the... Um, uh, distribution or the winners of the Senate competition are determined on the proportional vote. So it, it gives the two houses a very different political back- makeup. And it's usually the case, or often the case, that um, the government in power doesn't have control of the Senate, which gives the Senate a great deal of power to um, veto government legislation. What that means in practice is you get a handful of, back- of crossbenchers, as they're called, or independents, that can hold the government to ransom and, mm. and extract a disproportionately high price for their votes. Australian politics has been dominated by Labour and the National Liberal Coalition over the years, but that's starting to break down. Increasingly, the influence of independence is being felt. And one of the reasons is an issue Australia's been accused of failing to act on, climate change. There are a number of what are called these teal candidates standing in predominantly coalition-held seats and they're really, uh, it's a sign of a potential split within the coalition. That's the centre-right part of Australian politics. Um, centre-right politics tends to be dominated by a combination of conservatives and economic liberals. So it's a right-wing on economics or right-wing on cultural issues. And you can see, you, saw it in, you see it in America, don't you? That, that sort of, that's a conflict that's breaking out there. That there's a lot of people who are progressive on cultural issues but can still be quite right-wing on economic issues. And that's where there's a danger to the coalition in Australia, that these teal candidates are much more progressive on cultural issues and particularly on climate change. So hence the teal, that's blue-green kind of thing. That's right. That's right. A bit of blue and a bit of green, exactly. And they're backed by a group called Climate 200, uh, which is, is, is funded by members of the public and backed by one particularly wealthy Australian. And they're, they're trying to make climate change Um, a particularly big issue in wealthy inner-city electorates where it resonates. Ross Stitt reckons Australians are as apathetic and fatalistic about election results as New Zealanders, unless it comes to issues like the cost of living. But there is one difference that sets us apart. One of the major differences I noticed from, from having lived in both countries is Australian politics is a lot louder and the politics is, is, is nastier. Um, I suppose more American in a way. And you, I don't know if you've seen it, but we had a, the leaders' debate on Sunday night, and it turned into an absolute shouting match. Private members, yeah, I have because previous okay, so people, you can do legislation. You, you just haven't pre- done one previous proposal you're so excited no, about. Previous governments so Scott, two have allowed for parliamentary debate. We have got, got a plan, plan, and I'll tell you what no, the plan is. No. It's a plan that you don't like, no. because what you want it's only two is pages. that the Cabinet has to like decide. That. There's nothing on it. The cabinet well, obviously, we've had that period in Australia where we were sort of getting rid of Prime Ministers and leaders of the opposition at <laughs> a great rate. I think over a period of 12 years, we had seven Prime Ministers. Um, and that was a sign, I suppose, of uh, a form of toxicity within the parties 
is it angry? That, that's probably an international development, though. If you look at um, the US in particular, there is greater polarization now, isn't there? And um, I mean, a lot of people would attribute it to the rise of social media. Right, let's move on to the issues and the non-issues. The, the issues that aren't proving to be of any significance in the current le- election are COVID-19. It's remarkable how that has just disappeared, even though we're still getting thousands of cases a day. We've got thousands of people in hospital and, and you know, a reasonable number of deaths. I think we were getting 45 deaths a day a couple of, about a week ago. But that has just disappeared. Um, at one point, it's dominated our politics. Um, law and order is a complete non-issue in this election, which I see in New Zealand, seems, that seems to be a big issue in New Zealand. Um, Indigenous affairs has not become an issue at all in this election. I thought at one stage it might, but um, just there's an ongoing discussion about um, what's called the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is um, about uh, Indigenous, greater Indigenous rights, the potential voice to Parliament, potential treaty, etc. But um, that hasn't proven to be much of an issue at all in this election. Uh, looking at New Zealand, it appears that obviously that the Maori issues are much more politically significant than um, Aboriginal issues are in Australia. Mm. But obviously that's, a, that's particularly partially a sign of numbers, obviously. Mm. So what are the um, big what are issues? What issues in yeah. Australia? Mm. Well, yeah, well, the, the big one now is, is cost of living, not surprisingly. I mean, it's been an unusual election campaign in that we've had both um, the release of the highest inflation figure in over a decade, 5.1%, and the first uh, increase in the Reserve Bank's cash rate in over a decade, both, both happening during an election campaign. So, so this this is really a major obstacle to uh, Scott Morrison's re-election. Uh, I suspect it will probably prove fatal. Uh, cost of living, and it's, it's just, I know it's the same in New Zealand, if not worse, cost of living is rising rapidly, and that's something that immediately grabs people's attention, um, particularly when the bank starts putting mortgage rates up. Yeah. And uh, even if people don't understand it, the person they blame, obviously, it's the first person they blame is the Prime Minister and his mm. government. But, I mean, these, you know, you talk about the Morrison facing defeat, but that's what happened last time, isn't it, that polls were indicating that he was a goner and he scraped through. Yeah. What are the chances the polls are wrong this time? Yes, it was called the unlosable election last time and uh, for Labour, and, and they lost it. <laughs> um, I think it's less likely. There's a natural cycle in politics of time for a change, isn't it? And the coalition government's been in power for nine years, so I think that works against them. So Labour's lead in the polls this time is bigger than it was last time. And and perhaps the single biggest difference is that, given the loss last time, the Labour Party have adopted what we call here a small target uh, approach. Small target means a small leader. A small leader is a weak leader. And a weak leader is a risk to Australia our economy and our security. I'm not sure whether you use that phrase in New Zealand, but in other words, don't have any major policies you might be attacked on, <laughs> mm. which is a slightly dispiriting approach to politics. Yeah. But So this is an election about nothing. <laughs> that's right. It's about shouting about, about, about the cost of living and whose fault it is. I mean, last time in 2019, Labor took a reasonably comprehensive set of tax reform policies, um, including... Um, increasing effectively the capital gains tax and cost and removing negative gearing on property. But um, that is seen by many people as having been one of the big 
problems with the last Labour campaign in 2018 and, and it contributed significantly to the Labour loss. So they've learned their lesson and they're not taking any substantive policies this time. What they're tending to do is every time the coalition announces some new expenditure, some new government spending, the Labour immediately matches it. So um, uh, they're, they're really campaigning on the basis that, well, it's time for, for the coalition to go. Cost of living is high, inflation, the government's lost control of it. Uh, Labour couldn't do any worse. Is there a difference between the two? Will a change of government make any difference in Australia? I, 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 it will make a difference. You know, there are issues, for example, like, and this is an important one for New Zealand, which is the relationship with China. The reality is that the coalition under Scott Morrison is much more antagonistic towards China. I mean, it's 80 years ago right now since Australia and the United States were battling in the Coral Sea. And we're here again right now working together with our partners, with New Zealand, with the other many Pacific nations to ensure that we can secure uh, this peace and stability within the Pacific. Um, partly for political reasons, domestic political reasons, but partly because ideologically they are more hawkish than the Labour Party. Um, so, so some of these are, are what I would call you know, the, the attitude to Ukraine. I think that you get a lot more sabre-rattling from Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton than you would get from the Labour Party. Now, that may be a bad thing, but it is a, or a good thing, depending where you stand, but it is at least a difference between the parties. Um, there's, there's a perception amongst people who are interested in politics, of course, that the Labour Party is left, more left-wing and the, the coalition is more right-wing, and that means on things like um, wages that you're more likely to see your wage increases under the Labour Party. And indeed, Anthony Albanese was asked about whether or not the minimum wage should go up by 5.1%, which was the latest inflation figure. You said you don't want people to go backwards. Uh, does that mean you would support a wage hike of at least 5.1% just to keep up with inflation? Absolutely. I think that was a word he used, absolutely. Well, of course, that's been met by a, a howls of outrage from the business community and from the coalition, saying, well, you'll just trigger a, a wage spiral. Mr Albanese showed yesterday that he is a complete loose unit on this stuff. He just runs off. He just runs off at the mouth. I mean, it's like he just unzips his head and he just lets everything fall on the table. So, so you know, that is a difference. So that I think that, that you will see more um, compassion, if that's the right word, on things like wage increases, on spending on aged care, spending on health care and education. Um, even though the Labour Party would deny it, I suspect you would see greater government expenditure and therefore greater deficits and greater debt under Labour. Now, that's, that's one of the major issues that the coalition's campaigning on, of course, that um, the debt and deficits will blow out under Labour. That's always been an argument run by the coalition. The problem they've got this time is, of course, that the debt and deficits have blown out under them already. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they threw hundreds of billions of dollars at the economy um, during the pandemic. Then the, the March budget, they threw oh, $250 handouts and um, tax handouts to something like 15 million Australians. Um, and they're doing the same in the election campaign. They're going around the country just, you know, here's a swimming pool, here's a tennis court, you know, what, what we call pork barrelling, mm. um, just vote buying, really. So the coalition's lost a lot of its credibility on the economy because they've been um, as extravagant as they claim the Labour Party would be. But, but nevertheless, I think you'd see even more spending on things like aged care and national disability insurance under, under Labour. What about the issues that make um, a difference to New Zealand? Uh, are there well, any? Well, that's a good question. I mean, having a think about that, I mean, one that I would identify is the 501 deportation issue. Um, 
which is, is a non-event in Australia. You never hear about it, but obviously it's a big issue in, in New Zealand, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and, and Morrison has said he's going to tighten it up. That, that's right. That things would get even worse for us. That's right. I think New Zealand would get a much more sympathetic ear from um, Anthony Albanese and the Labour Party um, because the, the 501 deportation thing is, is partly related in Australia to national security. I mean, it, it goes back partly to this question of um, people who were going and fighting for ISIS in the Middle East and the ability that Australia has to effectively um, take away citizenship from people. Um, and that was all driven partly against um, terrorists. But obviously it's also become a big issue in terms of criminals uh, in Australia who have some connection with New Zealand, often some pretty tenuous connection. Yeah. Uh, but, but so to the extent it's tied in national security, you, you wouldn't see the coalition weaken at all on that that issue, whereas I think Albanese would at least listen with more sympathy and might do something about it to, to aid New Zealand. It's obviously a, a big issue. So one big issue for New Zealand, of course, I think, is is the brain drain. As we come out of COVID, New Zealand is exposed to a loss of um, people overseas and particularly to Australia. I mean, Australia has the same problem. Uh, you see at the moment in the professions, law and accounting, etc., uh, there's a lot of uh, job offers coming from the international markets for Australian people. And, uh, you know, the, the, the war for talent uh, is going to heat up post-COVID. And um, that will put pressure on Australia, but I think it will put even greater pressure on New Zealand. That might be one problem for New Zealand if Albanese were to, to win the election. I imagine that wages would go up faster in Australia than they would otherwise have, have gone up. And that may you know, increase the gap between Australia and New Zealand wages even further, which could make Australia more, of a, more attractive to um, young New Zealanders. OK, let's move on to the leaders now. Um, let's start with Morrison, because I, I find this quite incredible. The essay from James Lay from the Sydney Review of Books it's common knowledge that Morrison is despised by many of his colleagues. Recent testimonials from his own side of politics yes. have described him as a liar, a fraud, a bully, a complete psycho, an autocrat, a deeply ingrained chauvinist, a, I can't say that word on here, and a horrible, horrible person who is volatile, sly and untrustworthy. And this is from his own side. that he is An autocrat, a bully who has no moral compass. In my public life, I have met ruthless people. Morrison tops the list. How on earth is he still where he is? That is not attractive. Well, it's hard to know. It's, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of truth to it. And, and there's no question when you look at the, even the public polling that he is seen as untrustworthy, tricky, slick. I mean, you know, his, his nickname is Scotty for marketing. Um, but, but by the same token, when you see him campaign in person, he, he seems to have a, a, more of a, a human touch than most of the recent Australian Prime Ministers have had. If you have to go back to Howard, really, to see a person who could campaign as well in a supermarket or a mall as he can. But, but you're right, many of his colleagues who have fallen out with him uh, could not be more cruel and, and rude in their descriptions of him. So, And that's that's got to count for a lot, you would think. So obviously he's got a lot of enemies, but uh, he must still have a lot of friends to still be in power and, and he campaigns well. But, but the combination of all of that stuff um, I think will overwhelm him in the and, and what'll be fascinating is assuming that he loses, um, he'll be gone that quickly, and then even more people will come out of the woodwork bad mouthing. <laughs> in terms of his his, his sort of relationship with the public, um, 
the trouble really started from back in the 2019 um, fires where he was away on holiday in Hawaii at the time. Mm. And that was seen as insensitive. And then he came back and there were people that wouldn't shake his hands. And then, then you know, we've had a lot of, of significant floods, natural disasters, and people get very emotional, understandably, in those situations. And, you know, they're very unforgiving. If the government doesn't throw vast amounts of money at them immediately and, and, and fix everything immediately, mm. then um, they're, they're highly critical. And so... Uh, it doesn't really matter what he's done on some of those issues. He, he, he just can't win. Uh, he, he's a very good campaigner, but I think he's, there's too much against him. His, his, his lack of popularity, particularly with women, um, the criticism of his own colleagues, the, the problems with the cost of living and inflation. If he would win this election, it would be a remarkable turnaround, mm. and um, which would certainly be... Uh, I mean, obviously, polls have come in for a lot of criticism, haven't they, in terms of the Trump election and Brexit result. Um, I don't think they're as bad as people go on. And um, there'd have to be something seriously wrong if all the current polls, which have got current Labour well ahead, proved to be um, to be wrong. OK, well, let's look at who, who we might be seeing as the next Prime Minister of Australia then, who I am struggling to find really what he stands for. Well, of course, that's what everyone says. <laughs> He's been an MP for 26 years, would you believe? Um, a lot of people would say he's a really nice guy and, you know, if you were going to have dinner with one of the two, it would always be Albanese you'd want to have dinner with, not Morrison. But that said, he, he really doesn't have a lot of charisma. Um, he's probably honest, and I think most people don't think he's untrustworthy like uh, Morrison, but, but he doesn't have a lot of charisma. I mean, my, my own personal view is that politics has become very presidential in countries like Australia and New Zealand, and, and, and parties really would be well advised to have someone with an X factor, whether it's a Johnson or a Trump on the right or a Trudeau or a Jacinda Ardern on the left, you do need someone that's got that X factor. And Anthony Albanese does not have the X factor. He's had a, a very troubled campaign. I don't know how much of that's been reported in New Zealand. I mean, he got COVID early on, mm. uh, which was a good opportunity for the rest of his team to shine. But uh, he was out of the public limelight for a while. But he's also made a number of gaffes, and people have different views on the importance of this. I mean, uh, for example, he didn't know the Reserve Bank's cash rate, and he didn't know, when asked, the unemployment rate. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's Uh, 5.4, sorry, I'm not sure what it is. Do you know the official cash rate off the top of your head? Oh look, we we can do the old uh, old Q and A stuff over fifty but different over over fifty fifty different figures. Now this was at a time when the unemployment rate had hit four percent, you know, the lowest in decades, and um, you know it was in all the headlines, all the newspapers. It was reported everywhere this four percent figure, and it was just staggering that he didn't know that. Not not that he was not that he's running for the treasury portfolio or anything else. It's more just a case of where's he been? How could he have not, yeah. not seen that? And the last word goes to the two leaders. It's a choice between a strong future and an uncertain one. It's a choice between a government you know and a Labor opposition that you don't. I will lead with integrity and I will treat you with respect. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. 
Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell, produced by Sarah Robson, and thanks to Ross Stitt. Kaki te anō.